Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, Romans, the Gospel for Sinners. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? Or from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Let's look together at this passage. If there is a pinnacle, if there is a peak to Paul's epistle to the Romans, perhaps this is it. Surely, This is the exclamation point of what God has revealed to us up until this point. I mean, consider, if we just consider the last several chapters that we have looked at together, in chapter 9 and 10 and 11, if we just isolated those, think about it. Who can hear the doctrine of predestination and not praise God for His sovereign grace? Who can read of the gift of the gospel? And the necessity of evangelism. And not rejoice that God has commissioned His church and mobilized His church into all nations. Who can learn of God's kindness to the Gentiles like you and and like me. And not respond with the humble gratitude that God has grafted us in. If you don't sense the magnitude of this moment in this passage... Go back to sleep. The rest of us will continue on, right? It is as if the significance of everything that Paul has written up until this point is as if it has welled up within him and it's ready to just, it's ready to just burst forth in doxological worship. And so he leads us, he leads us in a sense in this hymn-like praise, teaching us not only about God, but leading us in worship of Him. As we consider the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, what do we find? We find that His judgments are unsearchable. We find that His ways are inscrutable. For who is known or who has been or who has given? It is as if Paul leads us He leads us like a congregational choir singing in the harmony of the Holy Spirit three verses to God's glory. We sing first, as I have outlined it here, we sing first of His wisdom with three exclamations of God's sovereign plan. We sing second of His ways Three rhetorical questions that humble us and simultaneously lead us in worship. 
We sing third of the wonder of God. Three prepositional phrases telling of His supreme sovereignty. It's a hymn that every Christian should know. A doxology that we all must sing with reverence and awe. And so I want us to look at this. I'm, I know there are more than three verses here as it is categorized. But I want us to look at it as if it is a hymn. Let's look at it as if it is a hymn with three verses for us to sing together. And this first verse that we're going to sing together tells us of the work of God. In fact, we start right at the beginning here with this Greek particle, oh. It's an exclamation, an expression of humility, an exclamation of awe. Paul is neither flippant nor familiar in his doxological response to the revelation of God. Now, in an age where we approach God in a much more cavalier way, sometimes even in a condescending way, Paul's expression, well, I see it as the equivalent to to the Apostle John's encounter when he encountered the resurrected and ascended Christ. Do you remember how John responded when he witnessed the resurrected and ascended Christ? When I saw him, John writes, I fell at his feet as though dead. Listen, if Paul is our choir director. He's directing us prostrate. What flows from this exclamation? Oh, what flows from this exclamation is a declaration of who God is as revealed in what He has done. And this, Paul declares, is unfathomable. Unfathomable, leading us to consider, leading us even to meditate upon the inexhaustible magnitude, the depth, as Paul uses the word here, of God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. Attributes of God telling us of His sovereign work in what? His sovereign work specifically in our salvation. How foreign this is to a land of entertainment-driven consumerism. Where our view of God is dictated by our desires. And our so-called worship is yet another distracting amusement. A.W. Tozer clarifyingly observes, quote, The church has surrounded her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has done not deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge. He goes on to say, With our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper. And that wasn't written yesterday. But if it was the case in Tozer's day, it is certainly the case in our own. But there is but one remedy to this spiritual malady. It is for us. For us to behold with the Apostle Paul a depth 
that has no bottom. A height that has no summit. A subject inexhaustible. Things into which, Paul says, angels long to peer. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And yet often we, in the age in which we live, notably, we as materialists, we often hear the word riches and we think of worldly riches, worldly wealth. It's not hard to understand how a prosperity gospel has deluded so many in our day. But Jesus confronts this error, you may recall. He confronts this error with one simple question. Jesus asked, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? You see, Jesus had no problem addressing the topic of riches. But what he showed is that there are worldly riches and then there are riches. Faced with the stark reality of eternity, you would give everything for heaven. If only you could buy it. But I've got news for you. God does not bargain with dust. But He bestows by grace. Showing the surpassing grace, the surpassing riches that is of His grace in kindness. Showing the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness to sinners like you. To sinners like me. How can we not wonder how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. But it's not only the riches of God that Paul leads us to consider. But it's His wisdom too. Isn't it? J.I. Packer says wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and the highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. Wisdom is, in fact, the practical side of moral goodness. As such, he goes on to say, it is found in its fullness only in God. He is alone naturally and entirely and invariably wise. And while we see God's wisdom on display in obvious ways such as creation, Paul here has in mind our salvation. As God reveals His wisdom in our justification, as God reveals His wisdom in our sanctification, as God reveals His wisdom ultimately in our glorification, Paul could confidently say this to the church at Corinth. For such, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and follies to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Oh, the depths of God's wisdom indeed. For who knows better than God? While we know things, you know things, but, but, but our knowledge is limited. 
though it can grow, our knowledge is always limited. It's always imperfect. God's knowledge is inexhaustible. God's knowledge is perfect. Of God's knowledge, Arthur Pink writes, God is omniscient. He knows everything. Everything possible, everything actual, all events, all creatures of the past, the present, and the future. He is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven, in earth, and in hell. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing can be hidden from him. Nothing is forgotten by him. He never errs, never changes, never overlooks anything. And it's in this perfect knowledge of God. Think about back to chapter 8 with me. What did we learn about what God knows and what God foreknows? Those whom He foreknew or foreordained, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers, And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, as we think about this idea of God's riches and his wisdom and his knowledge, what God does with his wisdom, what God does with his riches in his wisdom, according to his knowledge, it's his sovereign privilege, isn't it? And yet, there are some who are frustrated that God sovereignly elected some unto salvation in eternity past while passing over others. Some even disdain, some even reject the doctrine of predestination, although it is clearly taught in Scripture. Some are frustrated by their limited contribution, arguing for justification by faith today and by works tomorrow. Some would rather work for the wages of sin and die than receive the gift of eternal life by faith. But what God does and how God does it does not warrant our welcome or our dispute. As Matthew Henry remarks, listen closely to this, the judgments of His hands And the ways of his providence are dark and mysterious, which therefore we must not pry into, but silently adore. Hmm. But silently adore. Hmm. How many things did I want to secretly pry into? How many things did I just think I'd be so much happier if I could just see it from God's perspective? Hmm. No, I wouldn't. God knows exactly what you need. God knows exactly what I need. He calls us to silently adore. And that was just the first verse of our song. But let's move on to the second verse. The second verse, I'm thinking of it in the way of the ways of God. God is, or rather Paul, has moved from his three exclamations of God's riches, wisdom, and knowledge. And now he asks three rhetorical questions. Likely complementing the exclamations that he has previously stated, but in reverse order. In other words, what you're going to want to look for here as we work through this passage is, 
Paul is going to use these rhetorical questions on the same topics as riches, wisdom, and knowledge, but now in reverse order. Knowledge, wisdom, and riches. Let's look at this together. Quoting from Isaiah, Paul asks the first question. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who knows God's mind? It's a question of knowledge. Is there anyone who knows what God knows? Hey, this is not a searching question, is it? This is a telling question. Are we listening to what the question is telling? As His ways are inscrutable, it is God who will ask the questions, as He did poor Job. Concluding, asking Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Who knows the mind of the Almighty? Not Job, not you, not me, no one born of Adam. No, we stand with Job confessing these words. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Who knows what God knows? No one born of Adam. Like the first, Paul's second question, it's also from Isaiah. Look with me. Who has been the Lord's counselor? Who counsels God? It's a question of wisdom, isn't it? Is there anyone wise enough to counsel God? He who is perfect wisdom will not, cannot be counseled. Only the fool thinks he has something to offer God. As if the fool says, well, God, I've got something to help you out with here. Let me just inform you about the chaos that's going on down here. <laughs> what a moron. <laughs> so let's take note. Lest we be wise in our own eyes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord God is all wisdom. He need not be counseled. No one can counsel him. None born of Adam. The third question, the third rhetorical question that Paul asks here is not from Isaiah. It's actually from Job, interestingly enough. The question is, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And, and the general understanding of this, although not completely, is who outgives God? Who can outgive God? Well, it's a question of riches, isn't it? But in this sense, it's not of what God owns, but what God gives. That's the emphasis of this rhetorical question. What God gives. And if God owns it all, and if He graciously gives, then whatever we give to Him is what He has given to us. Isn't that contrary to what we think about? And again, I know immediately we're thinking about wealth and the, the, the need for us to think about being good stewards, but it also applies to our redemption. It applies to our salvation as well. No one who is in Christ saved himself or herself. No. We really aren't, in this sense, we really aren't 
givers of what God has given, but stewards. And we have been entrusted with the king's riches. And that's part of the gospel, isn't it? We've been entrusted with the king's riches. You know what? We get to share those riches with every tribe, tongue, nation, and our neighbor as good stewards of what God has given us. We give thee but thine own, whate'er the gift may be, although all that we have is thine alone, a trust, O Lord, from thee. But Paul's question, to be clear, goes farther than God's wealth and gifts. It also reminds us that we cannot obligate God with our gifts. As if to say, well God, if I give this to you, if you'll bless me. Or God, if you'll bless me, I promise. You've heard this one before, haven't you? God, if you'll just do this, I promise I will do X, Y, and Z. Yeah, don't do that. That's to obligate God and it's unwise because we can't. Consider the great riches of your salvation with me. What have you given God to secure your eternal election? Tough question. Think about it for a little bit. You're doing the math in your head, right? The question's absurd. Everybody has a smirk on their face looking back. Like, isn't this a Presbyterian church? Yeah, it is. Promise. Yeah, you're here. It's absurd. It was God who chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. And it's in Christ that Paul goes on to say that you have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. No, nothing can obligate God. And thank God we can't. Right? (laughs) Or what have you given to God To be justified as righteous before Him. It's your good works. Yeah, how are you doing on that? You stand before God and say, Well, I've I've been pretty good today, God. Justify me today. Tomorrow may be a different story. No, it is absolutely absurd. It is only by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So that no one may boast because we would If we could, but we can't, so we better not. Right? Or what have you given to God to be sanctified by His Spirit? If you think that by your participation, that you are cooperating with God in your sanctification, and in this sense that is true, but if you think that it is heavily dependent upon your contribution, I ask you, what can you do in your contribution apart from the Holy Spirit? Nothing. Nothing. So it is absolutely dependent upon the Holy Spirit's presence that you be sanctified in Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who helps us in our weakness. And it is by the Holy Spirit that we are born again. And it is through the Holy Spirit that we are conformed to Christ. And so I ask you, who has known the mind of the Lord? No one. Who has been his counselor? Nobody. Who has given a gift to him that that he might be repaid? Nope. No one at all. That is, no one but Christ.
No one but Christ. Not a son of Adam, but a new Adam who is for us. Think about it. Christ is for us perfect knowledge, perfect wisdom, the riches of God, and in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. When we consider the inexhaustible riches, when we consider the unfathomable wisdom, when we consider the inexhaustible knowledge of God, Brothers and sisters of Christ, we are humbled to dirt. But God knows our frame. And He remembers that we are but dust. And points us to Christ. And Christ alone. Our riches and our wisdom and our knowledge. For there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the answer. We're continuing to sing our hymn, aren't we? Let's now move and let's sing this last hymn. This third verse, not last hymn, this third verse of this doxology. And so we come to the conclusion. A third, a final verse where we read three short yet powerful phrases telling us of three aspects of God's sovereignty. From Him, what does this tell us? From Him tells us of God's sovereign will as the source of all things. Through Him, what does this tell us? It tells us of His sovereign activity as the sustainer of all things. And to Him, what does this tell us? It tells us of His sovereign glory as the goal of all things. From Him and through Him and to Him. These are three succinct phrases easily spoken but must never be forgotten. For it is the Lord who works all things according to the counsel of His will. In Him... All things hold together. He is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. For He created all things. And by His will they existed and were created. And because all things, all things are from Him and through Him and to Him. The very purpose of your existence. The very purpose of my existence. Our very being the very purpose of our salvation, the very purpose of Christ's life and death and resurrection, the very purpose of our eternity, what awaits us and what we are promised in Christ, the very purpose of all of this is praise. The very purpose of all of this Your very existence, your molecules being held together by God's sustaining power, nanosecond by nanosecond, is for the very purpose of praising God. And so, we shall. For as our catechism teaches us, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This is our purpose. This is our privilege. This is our joy. 
throughout eternity. And so let God's people sing. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, our purpose is to praise You. And as that is our purpose, You have been so good to us to redeem us in Christ, to assemble us as Your gathered people to worship You. And so this morning, in just this hour, You have given us but a taste of heaven. And we thank You for this imperfect yet blessed picture. Lord, we pray that You would help us, Your people, Help us to be eternally minded. To be a people who long to praise you with every square inch of our being and forever. And we pray that by the whole power of your Holy Spirit within us, that you would enable us to do that very thing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.